0: Hey, everybody. This is Alex.
1: Hey, it's Natasha.
0: And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product.
1: Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there.
0: It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you.
1: Yes, you can use, I think the best code there is, so don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is EQUITY, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription.
0: So head over to techcrunchcom slash subscribe, use that code, make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet, and now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechRunch's venture capital focus podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined today by two of TechRunch's finest. I am Natasha Mascarenhas here. Natasha, how are you doing?
1: Doing good. It's been a super boring week. So I'm just happy to be talking about whatever news we found.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've never slept better in the last couple of days, Danny Creighton. How have you been doing during this really, really dull couple of days?
2: Well, I went from cranky to bored. You know, there's something about hitting the F5 key on your browser. 10 times in a row every minute make the week go by my trick was to have four different counters up at the same time
0: and then compare and contrast them because i wasn't anxious enough as the returns came in i needed to somehow amplify that moment and make it somehow worse (sighs) but ladies and gentlemen you did not come to equity for more of that you came for the other stuff that we talk about that we care about and we have a packed show for you today giving you a couple of guidelines here we're going to talk about plaid breaking news airbnb news out today A little bit about gaming and venture capital the ant deal and the chinese regulatory environment what happened with prop 22 and the shares of uber and lyft we're going to talk about some new venture capital funds that are raising money what happened in the public markets and if we have time a little bit at the end about edtech m a so other than that nothing to get to and we're going to start danny if you could just lead us into Plaid and what has happened.
2: We, we talked last week or maybe the week before on, on Equity about the, the Department of Justice is targeting Plaid over its acquisition by Visa. That's a $5 billion plus deal that was announced late, I think, 2019. We learned today with the breaking news literally minutes before Equity's recording that the DOJ is going to sue to block the transaction. And so Visa and Plaid have the ability to respond. It'll go to court. In some cases, they might negotiate a settlement where they spin various pieces of, say, tax prep software out. The reality is, is that this, this is not good for Plaid. And again, this is a reminder that these deals are never closed until they're closed.
0: So my question, Tasha, is what do you think this means for fintech M&A? Do you think this could dampen market appetite for deals of this size?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, Plaid itself wasn't looking to be acquired when Visa approached them, according to Plaid CEO Zach Perrette, if I'm pronouncing that right. There was this movement, stay in your own lane and not really work with the big guys. And then Visa convinced them otherwise. And now it kind of has blown up in their face. And so I think that there's definitely going to be hesitancy going forward to join forces, even though that's what fintech needs, because it is so fragmented.
2: Consolidation is never a bad thing. But Danny, what were you going to say? I think one of the biggest challenges with a startup is after you do this acquisition, Okay, this was announced nine months ago. Now it's going to get sued. Now you have another year ahead of you, uh, depending on how long it takes to either go to settlement or to trial. So for like two years in a really intense, high-growth, competitive industry, Platt has had to flail, right? Like you can't really invest in new products, you can't do new things because you're sort of prepping to be acquired, but you're not really acquired, so you're in this sort of limbo state. And that's extraordinarily dangerous to be in for such a long period of time.
0: I'm curious if this is going to lead to more fintech IPOs because we're kind of closing the door a little bit on the M&A side, which of course could change valuations and the dynamics of the future public offerings. But on that topic... Ladies and gentlemen, we have been told that the Airbnb IPO per Reuters is coming early next week. How excited are we about finally getting this damn document?
2: How many times do you have to F5 the Airbnb SEC Edgar page to get an IPO uh, (laughs) listing out of it? I I, I feel like just since it's been so many years we've been waiting for this, I probably have F5 more than, than the election here. But I'm excited. I mean, to me, Airbnb is such a one of one company. You know, there is technically what what, vacation rentals by what owner or whatever the (laughs) competitor is, but like truly Airbnb is unique. Obviously this year has been truly like extraordinary for Airbnb. We're going to get some of those numbers. My guess is Q2, Q3, maybe depending on exactly when they file, they may actually be kind of filing pre their Q3 numbers. But I I am really curious to see how they've held up. My guess is if they really are going to go IPO in a week, the numbers must be pretty decent. Like there must be at least a storyline that they're holding together for the company.
1: I think I'm definitely going to get a little emotional for Airbnb next week <laughs> and it'll be it'll be exciting, but it'll also be a moment. It's a, the YC grad. And so expect to never hear the end of it from YC if they end up looking healthy. And then I also think the fact that they are choosing to not go this week makes a lot of sense. But if they had bad news... Maybe they would have gone this week. So maybe next week will bring better news than it would have if it came any sooner, is my optimistic read I'll give to Airbnb. I
0: like that. I like that. You know, one thing, Denny, if they go and file this S1 without even preliminary Q3 numbers, they're going to look terrible because into Q2, they were still in decline. So if they don't have Q3 numbers in this, what's the story? And this brings up a couple of quick questions and then we'll move on. But like, How far has revenue come back? Where are they in profitability? Has revenue quality changed with the swap from kind of like distance bookings to more local bookings? Has that made occupancy go up or down on average? I mean, there's just like so much that I don't know, aside from the fact that we have seen people report little bits of you know Q1, Q2 numbers from the company's financial performance, but you know, breadcrumbs, tidbits, not not the full story. And so I'm just desperate to get my hands on these numbers and really sink my teeth into them. So we'll leave it there next week per Reuters, it's gonna be really, really fun. We'll probably do an equity shot, actually, now that I think about it, just to kind of go through all of those numbers.
2: All right. Can we move on to gaming? Is that OK? Let's do it. Alex has been waiting for this moment for six months.
0: <laughs> it, it's true because, you know, the equity crew being a also part time
2: Call of Duty team, little known fact. <laughs> uh, I reject this, this characterization. <laughs> I think I would be killed in the first 20 seconds of playing Call of Duty. I wouldn't um, even log on. <laughs> you want to stop to the login screen. This is what I have to put up with week
0: in, week out when trying to explain the importance of gaming as a cultural and economic and even startup story to my, my my dear friends and colleagues who couldn't play Pong on an Atari if they tried. Anyways, we're bringing all this up because some stuff has happened that we wanted to talk about. Jonathan Schieber over at TC, wrote a long piece about the gaming industry and kind of the venture capital setup. And he pointed out that there has been some late stage money going into more established gaming companies, but it still seems that VCs are reticent to fund gaming-related startups uh, at the earlier stages, even though we've seen such a cultural phenomenon around games like Fortnite and League of Legends in the last kind of like five, 10 years and the growth of eSports. And so, Danny, just to kind of kick us off, when we consider the traditional gripe about games from VCs, that they are hits-based and therefore not really conducive to venture investment, how much does that old thesis really hold water in 2020?
2: I think it holds water pretty heavily. I mean, we've seen a couple of early stage rounds. I know Andreessen did a round. There are a couple of teams that have spun out of Blizzard, Activision, Blizzard, or is it Blizzard, Activision? I don't even know. This is how much I know about gaming. We've seen a couple other teams that have spun out of, of major studios and get funding early on, but it's, it's like very early seed funding and it's very small. I think it's really hard to make VC work in hits-driven businesses. It's one of the reasons why we haven't seen Silicon Valley enter Hollywood as successfully as I think we mm-hmm. might expect. We, we have not seen VCs back, you know, media projects very well. Because the the economics are just so different. You're not building a tool or a platform. You're building a game that has a release schedule that you know most of the sales for the game's entire life will come in the first you know six weeks of the launch. There's no product market fit that you can slowly build up over time. You know, it's just the entire model is different. Now, I do think that VCs are getting more creative about entering the space. So, for instance, ConvoY Ventures, and that's ConvoY with a K, is a seed fund that exclusively focuses on gaming infrastructure companies. So after we saw the success of Unity's IPO earlier yep. this year, there's a lot of excitement around the middleware in a lot of gaming engines. So the gaming engines are sort of locked in with Epic and with Unity. There's a ton of other middleware from physics engines to online multiplayer engines to platforms for handling skinning and e-commerce and transactions and all that across the board makes it easier to build games. So there's a ton of excitement there. I just don't think there's a lot of money for studios.
1: I'll add that there is a venture firm that closed a $165 million. Investment vehicle just for gaming Bitcraft, which Sheber mentioned in the story. thought that was a a solid amount of money. And obviously, their performance will set the stage for a lot of future investments. But Danny, I think you're absolutely right. Like gaming feels much more interesting at a macro level of infrastructure analytics, socializing. Alex, I want you to completely disagree with me. (laughs) But I think that's obviously... I think it's easier to sell it as like something disguised as a SaaS company than a gaming company to VCs at this point.
0: So all that's probably right. I mean, the old adage about selling picks and shovels is better than mining for gold really does hold up across a lot of platforms. This is why Twilio was worth 80 bajillion squillion dollars today. I respect all of that. But one thing that really stood out in the story was a quote from Alice Lloyd George, the founder over at Rogue Ventures. And she says that Fortnite really kind of looks like a SaaS business. Strong gross margins of like 73%. The net kind of retention of users and revenue as they spend in the game looks a bit like SaaS. And so I wonder if we're seeing games break out from the model that Danny mentioned, which is, you know, all the sales in the first couple of weeks, and then it really trails off, and then you have to go make another game, and there's a bunch of revenue declines. That's the old school, like, id software. You make Doom every four years. Everyone buys it, and then I get killed a lot in Doom because I'm bad at it. That was last night. But instead, I think these other games really do fit the venture model better, and I think the VCs that are able to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were, on the gaming studio side, could make a lot of money. And that's what VC is supposed to be about: the contrarian bet, not just doing the same damn thing that everyone else has always done. Oh, look, it's a SaaS toolkit for developers. That's like Jfrog. No, oh, good. Like, I mean, who gives a shit? That's easy. It's less difficult to do that than to make contrarian bets on games. Danny's face is amazing right now. I, uh, I,
2: I, I think that you know, look, it, it, it's absolutely SaaS. Fortnite is the SAS product today. The the problem is, is that unlike an enterprise SaaS product, where once you're sort of installed, churn is 0.5%, 1%, and you get to keep these customers potentially for a decade or more, you know, games, they come in and out. I mean, Fortnite's at its peak of its popularity. Are we going to have hundreds of millions of people playing Fortnite in a decade? I mean, I think that's an open question. I mean, you know, no franchise has held together that long because people get bored. They want new mechanics. They move on to other things. It's extraordinarily competitive because it's ultimately people's entertainment time. Gaming is doing super well because movie theaters are closed and Quibi isn't here anymore. We can't have all those high quality Quibi shows to fill up our 10 minute, <laughs> I, I guess, well, guess bathroom breaks word. throughout the day. But, you know, no franchises ever hold on, whereas like Excel and, and Word, you know, I think we're like four decades in and people are still spending billions of dollars a year.
0: So I know we can't stick on this forever. We need to move on to other stuff because it's a really busy week. But like on that point, Danny, you know, I've been playing League of Legends since college. And the League of Legends eSports scene is still huge today. I just watched
2: the Worlds a couple weeks ago, I think it was. Before we move on, I think one more thing that's important to note is is gaming uniquely is international in scope. You know, one of the things, uh, having looked at a bunch of studios, I mean, they're not getting a lot of VC funding, but what's interesting is studios are everywhere. They're in Scandinavia, they're in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, they're in obviously Asia. Australia has some gaming studios. Obviously, the US and Canada have studios. Unlike many other categories of venture, like enterprise SaaS, where your sales office is in New York or Austin or Salt Lake City or San Francisco. Like, you don't really have a huge shot. It's really hard if you're a Korean company with 12 people to sell into the Fortune 500. But gaming is one of these remarkably democratized fields. You don't have to necessarily acculturate the onboarding experience to every single locale. So you don't have to have things in the right languages, particularly for games like Fortnite, where the language isn't even part of it. You don't have to necessarily have the sales mechanism where you have to understand how to sell into all kinds of different types of companies and, you know, how do their procurement processes work? Like if your game is fun and popular, it's going to be successful. And that allows studios all around the world in a way that I just don't see in, in enterprise SaaS.
0: And that's Danny making my point for me, but I want to stick on the international topic. And I want to bring us over to China because the... Probably the biggest news story of the last couple of weeks in the, maybe months, really, in the financial and technology world it just happened this week when Ant Group's IPO was pulled. So, and Danny, not everyone's really caught up on Ant and Alibaba, the Chinese regulatory regime. So could you give us a, a thumbnail to catch people up about what happened?
2: For those who don't know about it, Ant Group, formerly, I guess, Ant Financial, it got rebranded. It originally started in 2004 as Alipay. It was owned by Alibaba. And it's a similar story to like eBay and PayPal. Once you had this online marketplace, you have to have payments. No one knows how to do payments, so the people who created the online marketplace created the payments. And then AliPay got spun off by Alibaba, I guess like a decade ago, I should say in 2014, into what is known as Ant. Alibaba then reinvested at a 60 billion dollar price point back in the company owns a third of it. And the story was is that it was supposed to go to IPO last week, and that was a huge IPO. $34.5 billion. if it hit that, or $37 billion, which some people reported, it would have been the largest IPO of all time, beating Saudi Aramco a couple of years ago. What happened was, is that literally hours before the company was supposed to debut, Chinese financial regulators basically pulled the issue and said that it is invalid and that the company needs to basically enforce new financial standards that the regulators invented literally the week before. Alex, you had the numbers, but it was quite oversubscribed.
0: Yeah, so the numbers that I saw was either two point eight or three trillion dollars of just mainland China retail demand for these shares, which you know is a multiple of thirty point five billion or thirty seven billion dollars. So we were about to see a, a a a tidal wave of interest in this, both internationally and inside of China. Huge demand.
2: And what's crazy is, in order to get these shares, the retail investors actually put that money into escrow accounts. So stockbrokers actually had three trillion in cash. Uh, often on margin loans, all kinds of different products to be able to buy this. You have to have the money in your account in order to get those shares. So three trillion was just lying around waiting to buy ant shares. And then hours before everyone canceled it. Um so we we did hear that most of the stock brokers who were buying those shares on behalf of retail consumers are essentially going to refund the interest from those margin loans. So they're they're sort of ah. kind of cleaning up the balance for everyone. There doesn't seem to be a lot of damage even though there's a lot of chaos. I think the bigger signal here is that for the largest IPO to sort of have hours before it was going to public markets to be stopped by the government over rules that were introduced literally two, three, four, five days in advance is a huge statement about the openness of the Chinese economy, the desire of Chinese regulators to ensure that ants pushing the limits of online lending is controlled. You know, Many of the new regulations put in place are basically going to dampen ants' business. It's going to have more reserves required for the finance products which means that it has to store more capital, which means it's a less profitable business. My take on this was China has really learned from the 08 financial crisis and even the online lending marketplace crisis in the US, which, you know, a decade ago, what was Lending Club and a bunch of others like struggled on the public markets because they had bad loans. And so they're just sort of intercepting a lot of those problems in advance Ant is expected to go to IPO again. We don't know when it could be months, it could be a year or two. Companies have three years to migrate their existing business models into the new business models that are allowed so, you know, Ant's not going anywhere. It's huge. It has 730 million customers. You know, it's it's not exactly a small company. But what a shock for one of the biggest IPO stories that kind of got subsumed by the U.S. elections this week.
1: The detail that I'm obsessed with here is that before when the Ant Group IPO was going to go ahead, it was kind of looked at as a slap in the face to the U.S. stock markets because it was choosing not to go on the New York Stock Exchange, unlike Alibaba which I believe did the New York Stock Exchange and then went to the Hong Kong exchange. And so now it might inspire more Chinese companies to to go the Alibaba route instead of the Ant Group proposed route. It's it's kind of like a oh no not anymore. And so that's kind of a detail I think is worth is worth mentioning here.
2: Well and Natasha you're absolutely right. You know Alibaba also is one of the largest IPOs of all time and it did choose the New York Stock Exchange. I want to say in 2012 or maybe 2013. It was a huge issue, and it was built around the New York model for a lot of Chinese stocks, where there's mainland stocks that are traded under what what is A-class shares. There's these N-class shares for New York traded overseas. With Alipay, it has no international business. Alipay is basically exclusively mainland Chinese. And so it was choosing a, a dual listing in Hong Kong and Shanghai. I don't think it would have survived anyway. I don't think in, in this particular case, it would have mattered which particular jurisdiction it chose. The fact that it chose a mainland ju- jurisdiction... It competes with a major state-owned enterprise bank. I, I think actually triggered a, a deeper review than many people anticipated. You know, the fact that it was such a big IPO, it was domestic, there was this huge demand with trillions of dollars stored in accounts to try to buy shares really woke up regulators in China to say, What's going on here? Like why are people so excited? Like why is the business model so much better than the state-owned enterprise? And and I think they looked in and they said, whoa, like a lot of this is like pushing the envelope on on regulations. The underwriting is for a lot of folks. I mean, one of the things that the Chinese regulator said was they want to avoid consumer debt traps. You know, they don't want people in their 20s and 30s taking out loans they can't afford. It'd be amazing to have that sort of regulation in the US, by the way.
0: That would be considered anti-capitalist, anti-business, and would be immediately voted <laughs> down across the
2: union because all those electors are bought <laughs> and
0: paid for by financial companies. Hey, one thing that really caught my eye in this was Jack Ma's placement in the Vortex. Now, Jack Ma is a co-founder of Alibaba and therefore Ant, but uh, as Danny pointed out to me the other day, no longer day-to-day involved with the company, not the CEO, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he did give a speech before the IPO was pulled, discussing the regulatory environment in China, saying you really need to unshackle this if you want to keep growth going, if you want to be at the forefront of things, you got to let us go forth. And in America, that would have been not a big deal. Elon Musk could tweet that out on a Tuesday, and we'd forget by Tuesday at lunch. But in China, that kind of <laughs> criticism of the Communist Party by a member, he is a member of the CCP was incredibly controversial and was considered to be a slap in the face, punch in the face, depends on whatever analogy you want to read. What place that played in this, I, I think, is important to keep in mind. But even more critically, he said, you need to have less regulation. And then they went, no, we're going to have more of it. And I think that goes to show the tone of the conversation among regulators and the government in China.
2: You know, one of the interesting things, because a lot of this is, I I, I wouldn't just say payday lending, but it is a lot of consumer lending in the U.S., most of this is regulated by the states, right? So so one mm-hmm. of the interesting dynamics here is, you know, obviously, China a little bit more centralized in an economy and, and a government. And so the regulators there have the ability to kind of shut down the largest IPO. In the U.S., every state, state by state, can put in place their own rules around interest rates, around disclosure requirements. There are a couple of federal bodies, but like payday loans are mostly a state concern. And that means that, you know, no state can kind of stop. I mean, if we had the same kind of setup here, where we had the largest IPO of all time, like, what is North Dakota going to like demand that it be retracted and shut down? Like even New York, you know, the largest state for for financial regulation, are they going to have the power to kind of stop anything to go through? Like it's just a unique kind of dynamic between the U.S. and China, and one to follow up on.
0: New York can't even stop the NYPD from beating up the people. And so I don't think they're going to be able to stop an IPO. But let's let's go back to the Americas here and talk a little bit about Prop 22. Natasha, you are our resident Californian, even though you are currently on the, <laughs> on the lamb on the
2: East Coast,
1: which is super telling, right?
2: <laughs> but you, you now are allowed to smoke weed. I hear it in New, <laughs> New Jersey.
1: Yes, I am. So, so
2: in some ways, you're bringing that California culture to the East.
1: It was super uneventful when when I saw like all the tweets about it. I was like, this is my life anyways. I was in yeah. Massachusetts, California, and now Jersey finally caught up.
2: Yeah.
0: Rhode Island somehow, even though all of its neighbors are are going forward, we're still backwards on that one. <laughs> anyways, I bring all of this up because uh, Prop 22 is in the news. Uber is in the news. AB5 is in the news. Natasha, some stuff happened this week, and I was curious if you could just kind of catch us up on Prop 22.
1: So before you understand Prop 22, I think it's important to get a hold of AB5. So in 2019, AB5 passed, so it forced workers to be classified as employees to be entitled to certain labor protections. That set off alarm bells between a lot of the gig economy companies, such as Instacart, Uber, and Lyft, because now all of a sudden, if their driver's food delivery people are classified as workers they have to spend a ton of money giving them certain protections god forbid that <laughs> and so prop 22 became this bill that was funded by a lot of the big guys such as uber lyft and instacart i don't have the total number but i think 205 million in actually a funding yeah was put on the yes on 22 and if 22 passed then it wouldn't force these companies to classify their independent contractors as employees news this week broke that Prop 22 has passed. And so these companies did get their way. That's kind of like the thumbnail of it.
0: I think it's great. And also one thing to keep in mind, even after AB5 passed, Uber and Lyft were throwing up their hands going, no. And so they didn't actually hire all their independent contractors in California. And then now we're going to fire them. They've always remained independent contractors and in sort of legal limbo. But if you're curious what Prop 22 actually was, it reads, exempts app-based transportation and delivery companies from providing employee benefits to certain drivers. I think is a very, very government way of saying no benefits for you. Not to bring our own politics into this, Danny, let's just stick to the business side of this, I suppose. Uh, shares of Uber and Lyft went dramatically higher on news that this was going to pass. Unsurprising to me, but were you surprised by the amount of gains that the the stock saw?
2: I was not. I mean, I, I think, you know, immediately, California is one of the largest markets for app-based transportation, right? You know, you don't have a, a great public transit system in either San Francisco or New York. In San Francisco, <laughs> the subway system is shut down for the next couple of months, apparently, due to Bad screws and a bunch of challenges there. So there's no mass transit. So on one hand, it, it's just pure economics, but I, I think it's also a signal to the rest of the country. Right, California in many ways leads the country on regulation. It just passed, you know, more privacy protections with a different prop. I think it was Prop Twenty Four or Twenty Five. they are all the, these there's different numbers. There's so many numbers. of them. You know, where California goes, oftentimes the rest of the country follows. And so I think for a lot of investors, they were looking at this and saying. Look, if all these drivers are classified as employees in California, it's inevitable that they're going to be classified as employees in New York, in D.C., in Georgia, everywhere else. And and the fact that it failed, it's it's repeatedly failed. You know, there are surveys that show that drivers tend to be more pro-22 than anti-22. Many of them want the flexibility; they don't want to be full-time employees and they have the control of the company. You know, it's just a mixed bag. I think it's the sorted AB5 history which was sort of a badly thought out law. Very. It didn't really solve kind of this employee freelancer kind of distinction. It just was sort of a, a blunt force instrument. And I, I think voters just rejected it handily. Uh, shout out to Mixtape, though, a
0: TechCrunch production, also a podcast that our own Megan Rosdicky and Henry Picovet record. They focus a lot on labor issues. So if you want to get the labor's perspective on AB5, Prop 22, and all things like that, that is the place to hit up. One th- more thing on this, Danny, DoorDash is supposed to go public sometime soon. They filed to go public back in like February or some really long time ago. Raised a bunch of money over the summer. IPO was kind of in limbo. Uh, do you think that clarifying this labor situation smooths the path for that public offering?
2: Oh, for sure. Even up to a point where I, I think it could even increase the value 40, 50, 60%, right? Like yes. instantly with that vote. And I believe DoorDash was actually one of the big companies donating to the, the pro or Yes on 22 initiative. For every gig economy worker, all these different marketplaces, this was a huge win. I think it just shows that there's still a huge debate for the next decade, or maybe even longer, about exactly how, you know, what rights go to which uh, people working in the workforce. You know, how do you define an employee? How do you define a a freelancer? How do you create more flexible work structures? Getting this back in the startup world, we've seen a lot of companies trying to build out new models around remote work, being able to do flexible work. We were just talking about a company, what, last week or two weeks ago, Alex, around sharing revenues from YouTube videos, yep. right, and creating models, you know, new business models, new income models and streams. The law represents none of this, right? <laughs> you're either an employee of a company or you're essentially not. Right. And if you're an employee of a company, you get health insurance and all these other benefits. If you're not, you get nothing. Yep. And I think it's that binary that we're going to see bleed over further in the coming years, but, but we have seen no traction at the state level, at the federal level, to try to kind of represent what actual work looks like today in law. And that's what we're still waiting to see.
0: And I don't think we're going to get much closer to that until we figured out nationalized healthcare, because I think currently, because we have stapled healthcare to employment, uh, there's always going to be an enormous gulf between full-time employee and go fuck yourself. Let's move along to talk about <laughs> venture capital. A number... <laughs> a number of files <laughs> can you tell it has been a week of moderate to severe stress for days um,
2: little punchier than usual sorry about that uh we're,
0: we're hanging in there you know we're, we're hanging in there natasha there have been a number of sec filings that you dug up for us on venture capital funds that are raising have raised may raise please talk us through where all the new money is going
1: so we saw three noteworthy filings get posted towards the end of day one of election day we saw Precursor Ventures file that they have raised 29 million for Fund Three, which they're eyeing to be a total of 50 million down the road. We saw Hustle Fund, another pre-seed firm, filed that they've raised 30 million of an also a 50 million goal investment vehicle. We also saw Insight Partners raise 413 million Ooh. for its first opportunity fund, I think based in the EU. And so my read on this was we saw two pre-seed funds half baked and and filed on election day, and I don't. I can't say that this is necessarily a horrible sign, but it is, you know, common folklore. We joke about it on Twitter all the time that when there's a big breaking news event, it's the best time to get your bad news out there. And so they couldn't talk about it because they're still in the middle of fundraising. So I don't want to jump the gun and say that they've failed to raise their total amount that they're eyeing. But I think it is something that we should keep in mind as we look in the form Ds going forward.
0: The other side of that, the other idea is that if you just want to hide something, not for bad news reasons, but just because you don't want people to know about it, talk about it, or know where you're at, you put it out with the, the big news day. Sadly, TechCrunch people have lots of time, and therefore we're always going to be reading the SEC filings. so too bad you can't hide them. But it's it, not it, necessarily bad news. It just kind of feels that way, I think.
2: Yeah, I, I think it was a bad strategy. I mean, the, the fact that we had multiple funds, we didn't even talk about Sequoia, which also has a new vehicle that they oh, yeah. sort of pre, pre-announced on, on election day. There was no news from a tech perspective on election day. Like we actually had like 30 journalists waiting around like, what's going to happen today? And so when every one of these funds sort of filed out of nowhere, we obviously were able to pick it up. To me, what was interesting here, though, is that a lot of these were first closes, right? So, you know, all three of these, minus Sequoia, they had raised some money, closed the first rounds, they had put in caps, you know, they had filed their form Ds, which are, are required for VC firms that are raising funds. To, to me, like, that's a, a little bit more of a, a news story, maybe for 2020. Right, it's not uncommon for folks to do first closes, particularly for first funds, where you might be able to lock in maybe half your your total fund, you can start to invest out of that fund once you've bid on that first close. But the reality is is obviously you want the full close in one go. You know, most established funds don't do multiple closes. If they do, it tends to be for, for very specific reasons. For instance, certain pensions might take 9 months to write a check, or, you know, you have international investors who are on a different timeline. So for logistical reasons, you might do that. My take on this is that the funding environment's just gotten tougher. It's harder to kind of close these rounds. You know, all of these are really established firms. Hustle Fund's been around a couple of years. Obviously, Precursor with Charles Hudson, very successful. We've had him on the show, and 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 have been very engaged. He's raising a third fund. This is not an unknown vehicle. And then obviously Insight. I mean, this is Insight's been around for decades. And so the fact that they, all these folks are sort of doing first closes, trying to get things moving, I think it's just a sign. We've seen some data that says that 2020 is going to be the lowest year for fund formation we've seen in what, like uh, eight, nine years, something like that in, in the chart. So I, I think it's just a sign that the the market is still very tepid when it comes to new funds and new fundraises.
0: And, and that brings us to our last topic, which is the public markets and how how hot they are. Because my, my read of this, Danny, is that if you want to have LPs, the, the big amounts of money that put capital into VC firms, you want to go talk to them when they're feeling flush. And what makes someone feel flush more than enormous market rallies? And we've seen the stock market in the last couple of days really just go on an epic tear back towards all-time highs. So, you know, my read when Natasha brings these you know, filings up is that there must be tons of capital out there for a VC firm. So what's the disconnect that we're seeing between Natasha's reporting and what you just said about kind
2: of fund formation? Months ago, we talked about the denominator effect, right, which is that for major LPs, whether they're pensions or college endowments or insurance companies, you constantly have to rebalance your portfolio. And and unfortunately, like stocks are easy to rebalance because you can sell them. They're fairly liquid, particularly in big public equity stocks. But when you get into alternative investments, hedge funds and VC firms and PE firms, you might be locked into your current funds for a decade or more. After the the financial crisis in, in March and April, after COVID-19 spread around the world, a lot of funds were really biased towards their VC funds, and they did not want to write new checks. Now that stocks are back, it's probably a little bit more balanced. But I think for a lot of funds, they're focused on short-term to medium-term cash flow. They want the liquidity or the potential for liquidity in case they need operations, in case they need to cover things. To commit capital to a VC fund for 10, 15 years in this environment is just harder. You know, It's not to say that no one's writing checks. Compared to two years ago, where we had $131 billion in, in fundraising for VC funds. Like We're not seeing those numbers again. And that's because LPs, I, I just don't think, are willing to commit given the uncertainty in the market.
1: I'll add, I was catching up with Justin Dawkins from Collab Capital this week, and he was saying that exactly what you're saying and that LPs, they're raising the fund right now and LPs are a little hesitant towards investing in first time fund managers. And the way that Collab Capital is getting around that and the way he thinks that alternative or new VC firms will have to is like, how can we prove that we can get you your returns back faster? Maybe not as much all at once but faster. The way that they're doing it is they have something called a space model, which I won't get into because I'll butcher it, but there's profit sharing that can also turn into ownership down the road. And I think that we'll see definitely see more of that from newer funds that need to now prove that, um, that they can give money back to their LPs.
0: Yeah. I don't think every new VC fund has to look just like all the other VC funds. As we talk about, you know, uh, you have the gray area between employment and and, and freelance status. I mean, I think also there's going to be a difference between angels and and traditional VC firms. We talk a lot about rolling funds and so forth, ways to get around these old school structures. I'm optimistic about it, and you know one thing we didn't actually get to uh, up above in our little note stock was the fact that we just changed equity crowdfunding rules in the U.S. to allow people to raise up to five million as opposed to one million per year. So we're seeing a lot of change in the way that capital can be deployed. I'm optimistic about it, Danny, uh, but I want to give you the last note on looking ahead. Given how hot the market is, you know, with stocks being so high and valuations being so hot, even though VCs are struggling to raise, do you think we're going to see an active startup funding market going into 2021?
2: I, I have seen no slowdown. I mean, I, you know, the fundings continue to come with alacrity. You know, founder friends of mine who are fundraising are still getting term sheets extraordinarily quickly, you know, quicker than I've ever seen before a series A that might go in two or three weeks, you know, start wow. to finish, start on a Monday in same month, you're getting the term sheets in from multiple firms and getting them locked in. I don't see any slowdown. I do think it'll be harder, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I do think people are going to be totally zonked out, you know, in a week <laughs> or two, like I think the fundraising window always traditionally closes in December and January, is always a tough time to fundraise. I think that's gonna be particularly true in, in late 2020, early 2021. I think a ton of folks are just going to turn off the internet. I, I was talking to a VC who was like, I'm going to Alaska for two, three months, and like, <laughs> there's no internet access. And, and I do think that that's going to be more and more the case. But I, I don't see any reason to, to believe that we're going to slow down, you know, particularly at the earliest stages. I do think there's going to be a winnowing effect as you get into growth. I, I do think there's less money in the growth stage. I think that there are going to be some more marginal companies that are just going to have a tougher time with the B and C. Obviously, the, the great companies are going to fundraise just as always. But I, I do think there, you know, how far down the list you can be before it starts to get harder to fundraise. That's going to get tighter.
0: Uh, Natasha, same, uh, same question to you over on the early stage. Does that all make sense or do you have a disagreement of opinion?
1: I think that we might see a one to two month drop in energy and new checks, but I don't see us having irreparable damage from the VCs I've talked to. There won't be a six month dry period, hopefully.
0: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is equity for this week. We are back Monday morning. And if Airbnb does fly, I'll expect to hear a lot from us next week. So cross your fingers, cross your toes. Uh, We're going to go back to refreshing the New York Times homepage. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.